You're listening to So Much Pingle, the podcast about herpetology, field herping, and anything and everything about amphibians and reptiles. Join us each week as Mike and his guests explore the amazing world of herps across our planet. And now, bringing a half century of experience and perspective to the microphone, here's your host, Mike Pingleton. Hello there, everyone, and welcome to the show. Mike Pingleton here, and I am your host of these proceedings. And here we go with episode 61, and I hope you all remain safe and healthy out there. So I'm back in the studio after a short time away. Uh, I recently traveled to the coastal areas of North Carolina uh, to help my friend and co-author Josh Holbrook with some aquatic surveys uh, uh, in some wetlands scattered across the area. And, of course, you all remember Professor Holbrook from uh, earlier episodes of the show. And, uh, well, along with his teaching duties, he's also working on his Ph.D., which is centered on wetlands ecology. So I got a load of insight into aquatic survey methods. And uh, I had lots of fun wading in shallow water and checking traps and seeing what kinds of uh, fish and frogs and turtles and uh, macroinvertebrates were present. Uh, Probably... Not the idea of fun for most people out there, but if you listen to the show, you get it and you get me. But anyway, thanks, Josh, for letting me tag along. Uh, And I also recorded an episode featuring Josh and his students, and that will air sometime later this spring. Now, before we get to this week's episode, I want to thank the patrons of the show, including our newest Patreon member, Jason Folt. Thank you so much, Jason. And, of course, I just talked with Dr. Fulton and Dr. Brandyhoff about the Asclepius Snakebite Foundation just a couple of episodes back. Good show. And if you're listening and you would like to kick in a few bucks, you can do so via Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash so much pingle and so much pingle is all one word. And you can also make one-time contributions via PayPal or Venmo. Just drop me an email to so much pingle at gmail.com for more details or see the show notes. Uh, just a few bits of housekeeping before we get to our guest. First of all, I will be traveling for the next three weeks. So the show will return in early May, uh, Mother's Day at the latest, and hopefully a week before that. And uh, also thanks to the folks who have responded to my request for weird, unusual, spooky stories from the field. And I still need a few more. So if you're sitting on something like that, please get in touch. I uh, recently had a nice chat with Rob Kreutzer. The one and only Smet Logic about some uh, crazy, creepy happenings. And uh, it, yeah, and speaking of Smet Logic, I almost forgot to. I want to give a shout out to Patrick Connolly. I hope I'm saying that right. And his sons, Ian and Spencer. They were winners of a trivia contest that Smet Logic was running on his YouTube channel. And I, I know they listened to the show. So, hey, guys, good work. Uh, one last thing, as I mentioned earlier, I've got an AMA slash origin story show featuring yours truly coming up this summer. And, of course, it's the summer of 2022 we're talking about. So if you've got some questions for me, uh, questions that can be read on a clean-rated show, of course, send them in to somuchpingle.gmail.com. And I've got some responses already, and thank you, folks, for those. So my guest this week is Dr. Joseph Apodaca, or JJ as he is commonly called. And uh, he wears two very large hats. JJ is the founder and lead scientist of Tangled Bank Conservation. And he is also the executive director of the Amphibian and Reptile Conservancy, or ARC, or ARC. Uh, That's a lot of work right there, and I'm not sure when he sleeps, but uh, I knew I wanted to talk with him about both Tangled Bank and ARC. And, of course, we touch on some other cool and interesting topics as well. 
So let's get into it. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the show. And on this episode, it's my privilege to talk to Dr. Joseph Apodaca. And from here on in, I'll call you JJ. Uh, and uh, he is the executive director of the Amphibian and Reptile Conservancy. And he is also the founder and lead scientist of the of Tangled Bank Conservation. Hope I got all that right. Did I say that right? Yep, that sounds good. All right. Welcome to the show, JJ. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. Excited to be here. It's good to talk to you. Um, we've known each other a bit. Uh, we met at, at uh, one of those famous park meetings. Uh, in, in You reminded me in Virginia a few years ago and uh, corresponded about a number of things, including the Herp Mapper Project uh, as it relates to ARC, ARC, and uh, PARC, Partners in Amphibian Reptile Conservation. So we know each other a little bit, and it's uh, good to have you on the show to talk more in depth about what you're up to. Yeah, thanks again. I, um, like I said, I'm uh, happy to be here and excited to be here, and I, I love listening to the show and, and uh, hearing all the cool people you have on here. So it's an honor to to be on here myself. Thank you. One more cool person on. The show. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's uh, let's take it to to the uh, first of all. Let's talk about uh, kind of who you are and uh, how you got into this. Can you talk talk about your credentials, your education, and uh, you know where you're from, where you live, and that kind of thing. Sure. Um, you want the f- full origin story or, or uh, <laughs> short version? You you have been listening. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Just give me the give me the wrap up. Okay. Uh, yeah. I mean, currently I um, I live in Asheville, North Carolina, um, which is a, a great place to be, especially if you're a salamander nerd like myself. Um, I did my undergraduate education at the University of South Florida. I was lucky enough as an undergrad there to get to work with uh, the great Henry Mashinsky there and, and his program, of, you know, go for tortoise research and that sort of stuff. And other, other folks doing great herpetology work there. And uh, then I went to grad school at the university of Alabama um, to work with Dr. Leslie Rissler and, and uh, on sort of amphibian evolution and, and population genetics and that kind of thing. Um, there. And then I did a, a postdoc at, um, Florida state university with Joe Travis. Okay. And then from, uh, there you, uh, were involved. What did you go from there after that? Did you go right into your, your tangled bank role or did you have some other stops along the way? No. Yeah. I actually, um, from there I took a teaching position at a small college here in Western North Carolina and, uh, did that for about five years until I sort of decided that, um, you know, that wasn't quite the role that I wanted to be, to be doing. It was great. I love the teaching portion of it, but, but, uh, I really wanted to be a lot more involved in direct conservation and, and helping, um, those sorts of efforts, those, you know, direct conservation efforts and, and working with, agencies and nonprofits and, and groups like that to, to try to make things better on the ground. And yeah, you know, I still teach some on the side for at places like Highlands Biological Station or uh, occasionally online or that sort of thing. So I enjoy that side of it. But, but yeah, and about five years ago now, I, I, I made that jump to sort of full-time conservationist, as I call it. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. Um, so I think, um, Let's start with Tangled Bank, the Tangled Bank Conservation, uh, uh, which is uh, 
an organization that you, or I want to call it an organization. I guess it's it's a company that you have to do uh, con- contract conservation work. Is that uh, what we what you'd call it? Yeah, um, <laughs> for lack of a better way to describe it, because it is um, sort of a rarity in our world, and yeah, something that I'm I feel pretty lucky to have to be involved with and to have started. Um, but yeah, when I started it, you know, I saw this open uh, need or open niche in the world, which was that, uh, you know, there's a lot of agency folks out there trying to do really good conservation work, uh, but the capacity is just lacking, right? And uh, often that capacity um, in a research sense is filled by uh, academic labs or that sort of thing. But um, but I, I was you know, lucky enough to be pretty deep in conservation through, uh, through a lot of my work with park, uh, which we can talk about later. And I saw that, you know, the, there was a lot of these cases where these species needed a quick answer, <laughs> you know? And so, uh, so I saw that a lot of times when you get a, you know, an academic lab involved, um, it's going to take a couple of years. Right. And, and right. that's great. You know, you're also in those situations. It's great because you're also uh, training the next generation. And, you know, I certainly benefited from that as, as have uh, a lot of people and a lot of my friends. Um, but there are some situations where we just need like a, an answer or something done on the ground pretty quickly. And so there was sort of that side of things that I saw. And then I also saw that, you know, depend leaning on sort of, the academic world to do a lot of conservation is, is tough because really what academia and, uh, you know, and these institutions are made for is, is to train, right. To train and teach and, and, and right. sort of mission. And so when we're thinking about on the ground conservation efforts, um, you know, caging turtle nests and, and restoring wetlands and, and, and those sorts of things, those aren't, things that a academic institution is necessarily designed, uh, to be doing. And it's uh, a lot of people still do it because we're all passionate, you know, about the conservation side of things. But, um, but for a lot of professors and things like that's, you know, again, that's the position I was in, uh, you know, the system isn't made to reward (laughs) that kind of work, right. You're made to, you're rewarded for publishing papers and for teaching and for, um, some service, but it, it's usually not to that level. Um, so yeah, so I started Tangle Bank, and um, we do everything from a uh, you know sort of high level research. We have a full genomics lab, and we do a lot of genomics research um, for a, a whole bunch of really cool species that I'm super lucky enough to work about. And then we have we also have a um, a pretty heavy field program. So we, we do a lot of, uh, bog turtle restoration work and, and, uh, hickory nut gorge green surveys. And, and, um, and then we, we do work on some, some other non-herp things as well, but those aren't as exciting. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I certainly want to talk about, um, the, the fact that you're bringing in a genomics lab to in, into play in this. But I want to ask you, what, where does the, and I, I think I've forgotten this, but what is the origin of the name Tangled Bank? Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, so when I was starting this, I didn't want to sort of pigeonhole myself into, 
you know, using a species name or a group, you know, I didn't want to just be doing herps or, or, or a location, you know, I thought about like somewhere in the mountains here, naming it after a location. And so I started thinking back to like, what really motivates me and, and, um, you know, what is this meant to be? And so Tangled Bank actually comes from, uh, the last paragraph in the origin of species, um, uh. Darwin talks about, you know, there's grandeur in the view that all life comes from an entangled bank. And so like my, um, overly thought out idea was that, you know, the tangled bank creates biodiversity, right. And tangled right. bank conservation helps to conserve it and helps to restore it in a way. Um, I, I've since regretted that name many times because <laughs> no one understands it. And it's even caused issues with some, uh, sometimes when I have contracts with state agencies or something, they get really confused. They think I'm a, an actual bank or something like that. So, um, that's happened more times than I'd like to admit. Um, I think it's beautiful, man. Uh, thanks. I appreciate it. Yeah, I can, I can, but I think maybe it, it's good because they won't forget you. Yeah, maybe it's yeah. that, it's that guy with that funny name, that funny, funny <laughs> name. some kind of bank. I don't know. Yeah. But they won't forget that. Right. If you, you know, you could uh, do a, an acronym or something with the, there's so many acronyms in the world, you know, good, good God, let's not do that. So I think yeah. that's a, a, per, a perfect name. So, well, thanks. I appreciate it. Yeah. So, uh, so you've got a number of projects and like you say, these are sort of, um, what would you call them? Directed strikes at, uh, at some conservation issue, right? It's like you're talking about, you did some surveys for the, uh, the Hickory Gorge green salamander, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. And so that's sort of a directed thing that, uh, is required and can't, it can't wait for some, uh, research lab to do it needs to be done. And so that's the kind of thing you're involved with. Yeah. Yeah. And we actually, um, you know, we actually also work with a lot of academic labs and like, I, I, we do a lot of genetics for master's students and PhD students and, and helping folks out in that way. So like, I, you know, I don't want to make it sound like <laughs> we're trying to compete with academic labs or something. I just see it right. as a, is a niche out there that, that, uh, there's a need for, right. There's a need for, yeah. um, somebody who's going to focus directly on a project, um, and get it done quickly. Well, tell me how the genetic, the genomics lab comes into play here. How do you, how do you deploy that as, as part of what you do? Yeah. Well, um, you know, I think a lot of people, um, realize now as opposed to 20 years ago, how, important, um, assessing the genetics for a lot of these rare species is, but I think what's really cool is in the last, you know, I don't know, maybe seven ish years, seven to 10 years, um, with fish and wildlife service coming up with this, their system for, for, um, species status assessments, which is, you know, they have to do anytime a species is petitioned and makes it past the 90 days or, um, or is already listed. And, um, you know, and that species status assessment has had a lot of power in saying, um, they, they go by these, what they call the three R's. They sort of assess a species viability, um, based on three R's, which is representation, redundancy, and resiliency. Um, and so it's a really cool concept when you stop and think about it, but two of those are directly tied to, to genetics, right? Representation is sort of like that you're getting the full phylogenetic breadth of the species or like all the habitats it involves and and the historical lineages. Um, 
And then resiliency, uh, a lot of times they think about it in terms of just having large population sizes, but it also directly ties back to having a lot of genetic diversity to be able to deal with things like diseases and climate change and, and have the adaptive capacity. And so, so that's actually where we spend, you know, sort of a lot of our time and effort now is, um, is working with agencies to assess, you know, the viability of a species based on, on some of those, of those R's, the representation and redundancy. And we, we also are, sorry, resiliency. We also work on redundancy as well. Um, and so, you know, I think, I think there's just so many questions that can be answered for these rare herp species, um, that can only be answered by genetics, right? How they move across the landscape. Are they inbred? Um, you know, what are their genetic, you know, what is a population, right? We think about like a simple question is like, what's a population is impossible to answer for a lot of these things without genetics. It brings, um, right away, the first thing I think I thought of were, were the, the, the flatwood salamanders mm -hmm. in, in the Southeast, well, Florida now, I guess oh, that's the first thing that came to mind. You know, you, you had the, the, the flatwood salamander and then, you know, populations are crashing and then genetic work gets done and oh my gosh there's actually two different populations or two different species of these things and so now you have to figure out what what that means in terms of where they're at and what their status is and uh and now you have to have another like you say another action plan another uh another plan for conserving them or, or you know what they're discovering their status so that these things are 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 kind of been these genetic assays of, I guess an assay is maybe not the right word, but these, these, uh, it's important, uh, to, you know, how a state or how the, you know, either state or at the federal level, how those things are going to get protected if they need protection at all, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then, uh, you know, going beyond that, that's a great example. We've done, um, been lucky enough to work with Singulatum which I can never remember common name, which one is which, but they're, they're the yeah. Eastern version Singulatum. And, you know, so once you see what needs to be protected, then we, we took a look and lo and behold, they're uh, incredibly inbred. And uh, a lot of people, you know, inbreeding obviously has like a, a social faux pas or is a social faux pas, but, uh, but it goes a lot deeper than that in natural systems where, um, if, you know, if a species is inbred, it's actually, uh, lowering their fecundity. And so then you get in this, this trap, right. Where that, where you have inbred small populations and they're actually producing less offspring. And then, so then those offspring are, you know, part of a smaller population, which then can only breed with themselves and become more inbred. And it's this downward spiral spiral. And so in cases like that, um, we see that not only what do you need to protect like genetics can tell us that but also like that there's a management problem and that like the problem that getting the species out of this downward spiral lies directly within you know the genetics of the species and, and you have to figure out management techniques like uh moving them around you know to different ponds um to, to yeah those genetics yeah and so you might want to uh, like in the case of the of the flatwood salamanders you know they're breeding them in captivity now as a an insurance colony or if, and for whatever reason, other reasons there is, mm -hmm. but I guess you're trying to pull in animals from different locations while there still are different locations. And then so that you can maintain uh, a, a wider genetic profile for that species. 
Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. And at the same, at the same time, we could keep going down this rabbit hole. Uh, <laughs> at the same time, making sure that we're not screwing up the long-term genetic history of that species. So, you know, that was one of the questions we also looked at is uh -huh. uh, one of their, you know, sort of last remaining populations in Georgia is, is um, some of the, the individuals that Mark Mandika from the uh, Amphibian Foundation is, you know, breeding in captivity and, um, and just got to breed actually, which is a really uh, a super exciting. And I saw sure that. You yeah. probably saw that, but mm -hmm. um, shout out to Mark for that great work. It's really cool. Um, but we also, you know, want to make sure that if we're going to have captive bred individuals that are going to go back into the wild someday that we, we haven't erased all that genetic history. In other words, you know, putting it back in that three R's framework, we haven't erased that representation by breeding individuals from vastly different genetic lineages. Kind of makes me think about, I think the peregrine falcon, you know, in back, you know, mm -hmm. building up populations in the United States. I think there's a lot of uh, peregrine falcon genes from other areas in the world that have been put into that, into that. So you, yeah. you have, uh, you're trying to avoid that situation where you have say the two different flatwood salamanders admixed in your conservation program. Yeah. You, know, you try not to do that if you can help it. Yeah, exactly. And there's some cases where, you know, I'm an advocate that, that you do do that, right? Like in, in, in certain situations, there's species that are so far gone that, uh, you are going to erase a couple hundred thousand or maybe a million years of evolutionary divergence. Uh, but the, the other side of that is that you're saving the species. Right. And so, right. um, yeah, it's a, it's a long debate and discussion that we could have yeah. at another time. But. Yeah. And I'm sure in, you know, we're, it keeps, we're going further and further, yeah. Down <laughs> yeah. but yeah. and different organisms have a different, what would you call a minimum population size that, that can support healthy genetic diversity i think yeah you look at a, a salamander and a human they're probably different they're different numbers yeah for sure um and and that's yeah you know something we wrestle with a lot and, and try to figure out and you know something again like a um well amphibians are really interesting a lot of times because you know they have these boom or bust seasons and, and yeah. so we try to we try to wrap our head around what that means um and you compare that with like turtle populations which actually like have almost like a built-in uh, a built-in mechanism to, to conserve a lot of that just because their generation times and the you know the their lifespans are so long that they can be Right. still producing, you know, and so that safeguards them in some ways from some of those genetic yeah. things, not that they're not, um, threatened by these, uh, genetic problems. Cause obviously they are. Well, and they have this, this chance to replace themselves every, every couple of years, they're going to have a chance to replace themselves. Yeah. And their breeding population. And I think back on, I've, I've been, uh, you know, I like I like the, the late winter, early spring salamandering, you go out to the ponds and see what's moving and, things like that. And, you know, I've been out to some ponds, you know, where the, the Jefferson salamanders moved to, maybe not too early, but they moved, they went to the ponds and then there was a cold snap and the whole pond is just frozen solid. There's a huge mortality uh, in the Jefferson salamander population for that particular pond, mm -hmm. um, but not for the entire species because it's a, you know, it's a widespread species and there are many, many ponds of Jefferson salamanders. Uh, but for that local area, there, there are no or very few larvae that come from that pond that year. 
Yeah. Uh, but fortunately there are other ponds and, you know, and things like that. But when you're working with an animal that has a very small range or a very uh, reduced population, uh, then those things become serious issues, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, those are exactly the sorts of problems and, you know, with Jefferson's or uh, other ambistamids or something like that, you know, yeah, if you lose a whole year, it's not great, but they can also produce 20,000 individuals from that population <laughs> the next year, you know, yeah. obviously not all going to survive, but you can have those boom years versus something like a bog turtle or a green salamander that has an incredibly small clutch size, um, or, or flatwood salamanders for that matter, um, you know, has a very small clutch size. And if you miss a year or two, you start to really, uh, hammer the population down. Okay. Uh, you bring up bog turtles too. Did you have, and you've done some work with bog turtles? Yeah, we do a lot of, a lot of work with bog turtles, um, both with Jangle Bank and with, uh, Arc. Um, I'm lucky enough to be, uh, part of the Northern bog turtle genetics group or leading the genetic effort for the Northern, uh, lineage. And then, um, and then we do a, a whole lot of work here in North Carolina, um, in terms of, of managing populations, doing restorations and, and, uh, um, work a lot with Mike Knorr, who is like sort of this expert of, you know, finding nests and caging them. And so we have a big, uh, nest caging program that, that, um, you know, he's really sort of developed <laughs> the, the technique behind that. And, and, uh, not that he's developed it necessarily, but he's, he's spearheaded our efforts and, and has done a great job with that. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so, yeah, we, we try to put, you know, baby turtles back into the, into some of these key populations every year. And we try to restore, uh, a number of bogs every year. And we just actually last week put in for, a a bigger grant to make that sort of a Southern lineage thing, Virginia to, uh, North Carolina, Tennessee, and South Carolina, um, you know, to, to get a better broad view of what's going on. And, uh, we already have an, an idea from a lot of this work, but to, but to get a bigger picture in, in terms of what's happening genetically and, and population viability wise and, uh, and all those sorts of things. So you're, uh, all this information helps to make decisions about if you want to restore and put a, a bog back where there historically was one. Is that the kind of work you're looking at doing down the road or? Um, yeah, eventually. I mean, I think, you know, we have enough populations right now that are just, they're still in some form of wetland or bog. They're just not right for bog turtles and they, uh, and they still might in most cases contain, a, a super remnant population, you know, uh, mm -hmm. one to 10 individuals or, or something like that. And we're trying to put those back in the, uh, in the form that they can, they can host viable populations and that they can have, uh, nesting habitat. You know, a lot of what we're doing is, is, uh, brush management and removing woody vegetation. So that oh. they, you know, have basking habitat and, uh, and nesting habitat is, is really important. And so, um, yeah, you know, we're, we're doing a lot of that kind of stuff. We're actually this year taking on a really cool project of, um, working with fish and wildlife service and the nature conservancy to put in a, a turtle tunnel, you know, and under the road crossing oh. for one of our most important bogs that, uh, we've seen, you know, several females get hit on the road for them. Oh, and, uh, okay. so yeah, you know, just trying to, 
trying to move the needle on, on the conservation for that species. Well, the turtle tunnel thing seems to be getting some traction uh, along with the, you know, like the wildlife overpass thing. Once, mm-hmm. once somebody built one and, you know, or two, or it becomes, you know, it pops up enough in the popular media that the idea just sort of gets in the mind of, uh, of you know, not just conservation people, but people all over the place and then more follow after that. And maybe some funding follows after that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, I remember back in the mid 2000s, I guess, when sort of the, at least in my mind, the first big one of these that went through was the Lake Jackson turtle, uh, passage there. And, and Matt Oresco was really like sort of the champion of that effort. And I remember seeing that and, and that cost millions of dollars. Now, of course that was a much larger project. Than that. That would, that's in North Florida, right? Right. Yeah. 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 In the Tallahassee Jackson. area. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, so it was an, it was an incredible valiant effort and, and has saved probably thousands of turtles and, and other wildlife. Um, but I remember seeing that and being like, oh man, if we have to raise $10 million for every eco passage, we're in trouble, but things have really changed, you know, and there's a lot of, you know, obviously we can do it on a smaller level. And so for this one, we're talking about tens of thousands of dollars instead of millions yeah. of dollars. Yeah. Um, and, and, uh, you know, there's actually a lot of funding for this sort of stuff now in the new infrastructure bill. Um, oh, and, really? And okay. so, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's hopeful, you know, we can start to get these, these things and, uh, put in and, and the more, yeah, like you said, the more people see it and, uh, you know, we're hoping that everybody starts putting these in and, and we start yeah. reducing deaths that way. Well, you know, I've, I, I've say this before, um, on their show, I mean, I don't trust people who don't like turtles. Who doesn't yeah. like a turtle? <laughs> yeah. it, it's sort of one of those bellwether things. You know, you don't, you don't like turtles. What's wrong with you? Get out of here. Um, <laughs> so everybody likes turtles. And so the idea of a turtle tunnel to protect turtles, nobody likes to see a dead turtle in the road. I don't care who you are. Yeah. Uh, so the idea of, you know, that's, it's got, it's got the support, right? It's got popular, a popular opinion. It's not something that you have to chip away at over time, like, you know, pick any, any topic that takes yeah. forever to change social change. But the turtle thing is like, yeah, let's do it. You know, yeah. let's find a way to do it. So it seems like a win-win. We get farmers and landowners and stuff that, uh, you know, are 60 to 80 years old and, and they're kind of like, Oh, it's great. There's turtles. And then they get their grandkids out there and they see them and they're, they're on board. You know, it's, it's definitely, um, one of the easier sells compared to rattlesnakes or, <laughs> snakes in general. Um, yeah, I, I, I got to participate in a bog turtle survey up in Pennsylvania. The, the owners of the land, they had bog turtles on their farm. They were close, close enough to the house where the, the, the lady of the house said that, you know, she likes to keep an eye out her, her window on, <laughs> on the property, you know, and she has a shotgun up there. <laughs> <laughs> so they're on board, you know, like, yeah, nobody's messing with our turtles. They're, they're totally on board with the idea of protecting these things and, and making sure that they, you know, have a home. So like I say turtles, it doesn't take much, I think. No. And I think so many of us, um, you know, as kids and, and, and of that generation, especially like wandered the, the landscape and, and interacted in positive ways with finding box turtles and some yeah. lucky people's cases, bog turtles. And, and, you know, like you said, there's, the worst that's going to happen with a box turtle is you get your finger pinched in the <laughs> shell or something like that. Yeah. But like overall, it just incites wonder. And, and a lot of people love that. 
And so yeah. it's an easy uh, gateway. Or Have you ever had your finger caught in a box turtle shell, JJ? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Not just me then. No. <laughs> that hurts. Yeah. It does. Yeah. <laughs> Ouch. Um, so what other kind of projects is, is Tangle Bank involved with then? Um, man, we have, uh, we have a, a big list and, uh, like I said, I'm fortunate enough that every year we, we get a lot of really fun and cool research projects that I'm passionate about. Um, I mentioned the flatwood stuff. Um, we just did a, finished a project, uh, looking at the genomics of, uh, the, the black warrior water dog. Um, ah. we do a lot of eDNA work, environmental DNA work where we're trying to find populations using DNA from the water, which is really cool. Um, one of your favorites, uh, Western chicken turtles. We're doing that project right now. Oh, cool. Um, you know, hellbenders, we even do that for, for bog turtles. Um, so yeah, a lot of that. Well, let me interrupt you. Can you, can you, and I use the word assay, which I guess is a mineral term or a geological term. Can (laughs) can you, can you assay for multiple species at a time or? Yeah. So, so you can actually, you know, you can actually do a couple species at a time using, um, the traditional technique, which is called, uh, QPCR quantitative PCR, which, you know, most people are much more familiar with now post pandemic or not that we're post pandemic, but <laughs> after the, yeah. the start of the pandemic, that's, that's what your, your COVID PCR test is actually a QPCR test. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, we can do a few at a time there or, um, what we're increasingly doing for a few projects, um, in fact, uh, an, an eDNA project for the uh, black warrior water dog, where we're also looking at uh, for the flattened musk turtle, and then about you know ten other imperiled species there, fish and mussels. Um, we're doing what's called meta barcoding there, which is where we do the same technique. We take the DNA uh, to you know take the water samples, run it through a filter, capture the DNA, and then we amplify using sort of universal primers that will amplify all kinds of you know, vertebrates or tax or whatever we're looking for snails and, and then use genomics and, and, uh, bioinformatic techniques to, to then look at like what was amplified. And so, um, so those things are really cool. This, I talk about this all the time. We've been doing it for a long time now, but it's, it's still like just super science fiction to me, right? We're taking water samples and like then sequencing and, and looking at the entire community of vertebrates and, and, and some of like some of the results from that is, is mind blowing. Yeah. And then you like, I like a picture is like a chart thrown up on a, on a whiteboard or a, a slide screen of all the things that come out of there, all you know, pictures of all the organisms that uh, come out of the, out of the survey. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. it allows you to go in saying, here are the organisms that we're wanting to see in this, in this, this stream. Mm-hmm. Um, we're hoping to see, you know, X, Y, and Z. And so you can, you can gauge, the, the relative, maybe the relative health of the stream based on the things you find in the water. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The relative health, um, which I'll, I'll come back to that in a second. The other cool thing we can do with that is like, um, in, in Alabama and that, in that system that contains the black warrior water dog and the flattened mustard, you know, those are two endemic species to this one small watershed. And one of the cool things we're doing, uh, hoping to do with arc, um, with that is to take that data and um, then build sort of a prioritization map of where can we fix low head dams? Where can we fix culverts? Um, 
based on that data. So we see those populations, we see that they're separated by, you know, dams or culverts or, or uh, in areas of high sedimentation or whatever. And then we can fix those problems based on that data that ah, comes out of that. Um, okay. It's just really cool. We're also doing a, another pro, uh, project with the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians, which is really cool to work with them. Um, looking at what you were just talking about, uh, sort of the health of the water and looking at uh, using eDNA to, uh, or metabarcoding coding um, to look at like macroinvertebrates in the water and, and assess the health based on like what's there uh, from, from sequencing. That's pretty awesome. Uh, because it's, it's not a, of course, you know, you want to, you want to look at water and see, are there PCBs in there or, you know, mm-hmm. other, other chemicals that you don't want, but, uh, but it's also important to figure out what, what is living in the water as well. And, and using that as a, a way to determine the health of the water itself. Yeah. It's uh, to me as, you know, as a biologist, ecologist or whatever, it, it's a, <laughs> it's much more holistic way to do it. Right. We're looking at the system. We're looking at things. You can go out and you can measure PCBs or whatever you might be measuring. But that only tells you that that, you know, one contaminant is there or not. If you look at the at the critters, um, <laughs> you know, and, and there's nothing there that, that tells you a different level. You don't know why at that point, um, but you do usually know that it's healthy if there's a, a good diversity of things and that, that things yeah. are going right there. And, um, you know, I guess what I'm trying to say is if you're only looking at a single factor or a, a set of factors, you can miss that there's something else, disease, whatever else that that's wiping things out there that are causing problems. Yeah. And you, you know, if the crayfish are gone, then the queen snakes are gone and, you know, you, you get these cascades of population collapses. So it, it's good to yeah. know. Yeah, you can tell right away. What did you call it? Um, metabar analysis? Metabar coding. Yeah. Metabar coding. So you can yeah. tell right away that there's principal components of a healthy stream are, are there. So right away, you've got a, a pretty good idea without digging in too much further of, of what you're dealing with. Yeah, exactly. That's awesome. Yeah. I had, I had not heard that term before, so I wrote it down. Uh, and so it's different from eDNA in a way. Um, I mean, it is eDNA. Um, it's just a different approach to working with the data, right? Okay. Like eDNA, um, oh, and, and you can use metabarcoding in, in other ways that aren't eDNA, but uh, eDNA is simply like environmental DNA, right? And so it's a lot of people have come to think of it as like filtering water, but really it's any DNA you can get out of the environment, whether that's like shed snake skins or... Uh-huh. Uh, you know, feathers that birds have lost or <laughs> like any of that sort of thing. So there's, there's a million ways um, that you can be creative. Probably uh, with um, um, dung as well. Yeah. Yeah. Dung is, is another great example. And, and, you know, from that you can use, like you can look at diet and, and uh, we, we're doing a, a scat project or we've done a scat project um, looking at, Appalachian cottontails, which are this rare rabbit. Um, and you know, you can differentiate them from the common Eastern by their, their scat using eDNA. So it's, it's not water-based and people have come up with all kinds of crazy cool ways, like sampling leeches and ticks. Um, you know, you get the blood, what they've been feeding on. Uh, one of the other really cool ones that I saw is, uh, going into forests and collecting spider webs, uh, 
to you know sequence the DNA out of the spider webs because you you're losing chunks of <laughs> you know when the spiders uh-huh. are feeding they're putting chunks of whatever they're feeding on and so it's a good way okay. to assess like the invertebrate health of a forest and um, what what species that spider eats yeah oh. yeah exactly or just that you know gets caught in there and leaves some some dna hmm. um, so. well i was thinking back to the the whole rabbit thing you know the appalachian cottontail you called it uh you know i mean you can go over there by brute force and and catch them Mm-hmm. You know, and put them traps out, you know, the, you know, the sort of the traditional way of discover, you know, uh, trying to assess populations is to get them in a box and take data. But this way, you, know, you don't necessarily have to put that species in uh, or the individual animals in, you know, in a stressful situation just to get the data you need. You can do it yeah. other means at your disposal now. Yeah, that's exactly right. We did, um, you know, that was a pretty... And it was a three-year project, and and uh, we trapped. We had technicians uh, throughout the year trapping, and for that species, um, and still only got like forty individuals or something like that. I might be messing up that number, but it was it was a very low number. You know, just they're they're um, trap wary, and uh, they you can really only catch them when other food isn't available, and you can you can get them in there. And so it's uh, you're not stressing them out, and you're much more able to. Um, to get a lot of data, right. You can't trap very much. Um, and, and then, you know, we can get into really cool ways to use that data too. Like we designed, um, that study using transects so that we can then go back and identify where, uh, each species was, and then look at the habitat based on the transects and, you know, and so, so we can get wow. uh, a whole bunch of data. So this is sort of a, um, I, I know this is fairly new, but it, there's just so many possibilities for what you can do with this, this sort of work. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's endless. And I think, you know, especially early on, a lot of people, um, in the field were, I, I don't want to say worried, but we're kind of critical because, you know, it was taking away from old field biologists and survey work and that sort of stuff. And, and I think to me, it's like the opposite, right? It opens up so many more questions and we can be doing so many, uh, much more interesting things and gathering a whole bunch of data. And, and, uh, you know, there's still obviously like a huge need for on the ground biologists and, and, and on the ground surveys and things when you need to get animals in hand or, or to take other data, but now we can focus that in, right? We can find the good populations. Yeah. A lot less work and uh, a lot less stress too. Yeah. Some of these animals just don't take to being caught. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and we don't know what a lot of that stress does, right? They, they might walk away, uh, but we don't know if two days down the line they die or, or we don't know if a disease is, you know, we, we try to be really careful about decontamination, that sort of stuff. Right. And, and of course, whether they walk away un- or crawl away or whatever, fly away unscathed, you're still, by capturing them, you're still changing their fate. Yep. You're changing their day. You've interrupted their feeding. You've interrupted something. So, you know, there, there is change, whether, whether or not it, it makes a huge difference in the animal's life. You don't know that, but you are changing something. Yeah. I think the feeding is a great point. You know, how many things do we catch that regurgitate? And we're always like, Oh, that's cool. And I'm kind of like, you know, you get a diamondback to regurgitate a rabbit. Well, that's cool. But that was the only meal they were going to eat for six months or <laughs> something like that. That's, that's yeah. a huge hit, especially for, uh, you know, females that are gestating. 
Yeah, I agree. Um, after after you think you start thinking about what's happening here, it's like, oh my gosh, that's that's a tremendous amount of that's a big calorie loss right there. Yeah, that that animal yeah. can't get back, or is unlikely to get back. So, yeah, things to think about. Very cool. So it sounds like um, you're very busy with this sort of work with Tangled Bank. How many projects uh, do you have kind of balls up in the air sort of thing at one time? Um, we generally do um, somewhere in the realm of 30 to 45 projects a year, you know, and so so there's a lot. And that, again, ranges everything from GIS work and, and uh, to field work to genetics projects. And so... Yeah, it's it's a lot of projects. Um, I often, maybe I shouldn't admit this, but I often forget that we've done some project with some really cool species <laughs> or something, <laughs> just because uh, you know we have so much coming coming wow. down the line. So there's a huge need for this. Yeah, uh, you know, I mean, I think it's. Uh, I don't want to make it sound easy or or like, uh, you know, I spend a lot of time building up networks and. And figuring out what we could be doing, but um, but I think there is a huge need need for it, and, um, and especially um, I, I, I always hate to be the, like even bring this up, but there's this restoring America's Wildlife Act that people Rawa that people have been talking about for a long time, and if yeah. if we get that kind of funding bump, yeah, there's a there's a big need for it, and uh, you know I believe um, I just think we need to increase the capacity of wildlife conservation, and and this is a very efficient way to do that. Yeah. Well, I, I, I appreciate your, your insights on this. And I, I, I also want to talk about um, your role with the uh, ARC, the Amphibian and Reptile Conservancy. But before I do, I, I, you touched on something. Uh, you talked about the, the black warrior water dog. Uh, last fall, I had uh, Dr. Alex Crone on. We do our uh, Herp Science Sunday thing. We were talking about salamander uh, genomes and some of the, uh, I think it was the Noose, Noose River water dog mm-hmm. had the largest genome uh, of any salamander known. It was some ridiculous number of 100, 100 plus billion base pairs. It's just a huge thing. And I talked about it and uh, we didn't have precise numbers at the time, but it, after I looked it up and researched it, it was like some incredible amount. And, you know, the idea that some of these salamanders, their size, uh, some of the Mexican salamanders that uh, we talked about, the the, um, the little species that uh, I can't think of. Thorius. Thorius, yeah, which I actually got to see in Mexico. They're, you know, they're they're small. They're small, but there's they can't get any smaller because they can't contain. <laughs> they can't get any smaller and still contain their genome. Yeah, it's so big, it's just nuts. I mean, that's just sort of a nutty thing, you know. But uh, do do you have any idea about the black war, uh, warrior water dog? Is that kind of the same? thing it's got the the big extremely large genome yeah i mean i think all the water dogs are in the uh i'm not exactly sure but i think all the water dogs are at least above 80 billion um which is insane again you know people are about three um and the noose is uh, i think at about 120 and and it's uh it's pretty closely related to lewis uh, to the noose river water dog um I, we think and um, so yeah, it's certainly probably in the over a hundred billion base pairs. Um, and there's actually a fantastic article, I, I blanking on the author's name, um, right now that was pretty recently in scientific American on salamander genome sizes and, uh, some of the, 
more recent theories about uh, about those and, and what we're learning from it. And it's it's one of, if not the best, high-end general public science articles I've ever read. It's and maybe I'm biased because I love salamanders and, <laughs> and think that, that the huge <laughs> genome thing is just incredibly interesting. But um, it's such a fascinating topic of of research. I'll have to look that up because that's that's interesting. Yeah, I'll send it to you. And, oh, that would be great. I'll, I can put yeah. it in the show notes. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the big why question, why do these things carry around this this huge uh, genome? Why, why do they need it? Or maybe it's just some artifact from, you know, a billion years ago. Who knows? Yeah. The, and the article really discusses that. It's just, it's incredibly interesting. And um, uh, they talk a lot about, you know, like a, a lot of this sort of is, is from sort of Dave Wake's lineage. Um, and, and I, I remember sitting, uh, I was fortunate enough to go in 2006, maybe five, um, to the plethodontic conference, um, that was honoring Dr. Wake in Chiapas, Mexico. And, um, I remember sitting there and they hearing him talk about how they had, you know, found this discovery that, um, basically the size of the genome affects how intelligent these salamanders are. And, and it was so counterintuitive. I mean, if I had stopped and thought about it, yeah, but it was so counterintuitive that like the larger your genome, the dumber you are. And, you know, like we as humans are, so, we're so equipped to think of like, we're humans, we've got to have a bigger, better genome We're because we're so much more intelligent. And then sitting here and talking, you know, hearing them talk about like some of these species had, uh, so genomes. the big the big genome gets in the way of brain function. Yeah, you know, right? Because like the the larger your genome, the larger your cells have to be, and the larger your cells have to be, the less brain cells you can have. And so, you right. know, when you actually look at the trends, you can have really unintelligent salamanders with huge genomes, and then when you have you know some of the the um, the best example I can think of is like Gyronophilus, right? Which like hunts other salamanders. And so they've got to be a little more intelligent and their genome is, yeah. you know, a measly like 20 billion base pairs or something, <laughs> something like that. And <laughs> they've, they've uh, had to adapt. Yeah. And the article really goes into a lot, a lot about that of like, uh, you know, they don't give that example, but it's, it's this kind of like uh cool view of like, well, some, it never really mattered, right? Like they don't have to be smart and they don't have to be like, <laughs> right. Yeah, like advanced. They're crawling like, around in a river bottom in the dark. Yeah. It's, it's a good evolutionary plan and it doesn't depend on, uh, intelligence. It's, it's yeah, cool to think you, about. They haven't had a need to, to reduce their genome size. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Fascinating. Okay. I could talk about this more and more, but I do, I do want to talk about, uh, ARC, the amphibian and reptile conservancy, and you are, uh, the, the new newish executive yeah. director for that conservation organization. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, um, I think it helps to kind of explain how I got involved <laughs> in the, the, the origin story of the, uh, organization. But yeah, I took over as executive director in July of, of 2021 of last year. Um, but I've been involved for a long time. And so I, I really got, um, introduced and involved through park partners in amphibians and reptile conservation, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners are probably more familiar with. Um, yes. and, and I was, I got involved with Sea Park, Southeast Park, in in leadership, and became the co-chair of that uh, in the early 2010s, and uh, went on from there. And 
foolishly um, did two terms of national co-chair for, for national park. Uh, I say foolishly just because it's a lot of time. It was actually very rewarding and, <laughs> and a great experience. I understand. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and as part of that, I, I realized that park didn't have a strategic plan. We didn't, you know, it was, it was sort of like started by this, um, group of people who were really passionate about amphibian and reptile conservation and, and, uh, you know, but it, we had never stopped and slowed down to think like, what could we be doing best? And, and so, uh, Priyanan Japa and I, and I, who you've had on the show, I believe yeah. uh, mm-hmm. pretty early on, um, she was the state coordinator of park at the time. And, and we took on this role of sort of, uh, along with some of the co-chairs and lots of folks, but her and I were sort of leading it, um, of thinking about what park really was and about the strategic plan. And, and, uh, and so we really realized through interviewing a lot of folks and thinking about what park did well was that park is really a network, right? It's this network of experts and, and folks working in the field. And, um, and that's the role that it plays best. And, um, as we were going through this, we were both kind of like, God, we really need an organization that is taking, um, these priorities, these plans, these, uh, on the ground things and making them happen. Right. The, like the action arm, if you will, of, um, of that side of things. And, um, so I, after my, uh, stint as, as two co-chairs, I was, you know, sort of, had a little more free time on my hands and I started talking with, uh, ARC with Amphibian and Reptile Conservancy, um, which was originally sort of started as the, uh, nonprofit arm of park or, or just support, I shouldn't say arm, but, um, uh, the nonprofit group that supports park, right. There's a, a bunch of reasons, um, that park needed a nonprofit group to, to support it and fiscally sponsor the regions and that sort of stuff. And, um, that gets into a whole lot of like nonprofit policy that <laughs> would be pretty boring to get into, but, um, still, I'm glad yeah. there, there are people that think about these things because yeah, that, that's sort of the, I would bring this up. This is like the under unseen, uh, the invisible college of conservation, if you will, the people that, that gather together and make policies and organizations work yeah. without, with no fanfare, there's nothing sexy about it, but it's, it's work that needs to be done. It's incredibly important. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. so, so important. Uh, yeah. So anyway, I, you know, started finished with, with, with park and, and started getting a little more involved with, um, with arc and, uh, working with Jeff Holmes, who at the time was the executive director is now our founding director. He's, he's still, um, hanging around. And, and I had looked up to Jeff for a long time because when I started with, uh, going to sea park meetings, he was the co-chair of sea park, um, uh-huh. and just sort of always had this infectious, like we can do this conservation attitude, um, you know, and, and sort of, uh, gave me a lot of those lessons and, um, you know, over time he and I, and, and others had, we're, we're talking more about what ARC could become. And we realized that there is this huge need for, um, an organization that's doing, um, on the ground conservation and, and focusing on these key areas. And in a lot of ways, ARC had already been doing this, Jeff and others had started a program similar to what we're trying to do more now of, uh, in the Francis Marion national forest, so anyway, we, we put together, um, some strategies and, and focused on something that I've worked a lot on, uh, 
called PARCA's Priority Amphibian Reptile Conservation Areas and, uh, and sort of built our conservation strategy around PARCA's, around that, that, um, you know, this idea that, that we should be identifying the most important places for amphibian and reptile conservation uh, across the country and building conservation programs there, right? Like being proactive right. and find, finding ways. And, and uh, there's, um, people probably get tired of hearing me talking about it because there's just like a million reasons why this is a better approach or why this is a good approach. But one of them is that it's focused around place and, and place-based conservation uh, is powerful for, for any number of reasons. But one is that you can pull in allies that don't care about amphibians or you know, don't care as much as we do about amphibians and reptiles and, but, but care about the place, right? Whether that's ducks unlimited or the nature conservancy or a, a single forest or whatever it is, uh, right. landowners, people that hike an area, there's <laughs> the list is endless. Yeah. I mean, they, they have their own agendas or their own reasons why they're involved and, and there's no reason that the duck people and the, and the frog people can't have the same goal. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the duck and, people, and so, that just sounds scary as hell, but <laughs> you get what I mean. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, so that's, you know, for the last few years, we've been building that up and, and, uh, we're in this process of, of expanding to what we call parka programs, which is, um, you know, taking these patterns that we've found, we've identified a lot of these parkas across the country, at least over more than half the country now. And we go in and we say, Hey, this parka is an area that ranks really high. We have a metric and we could go in there and we can do some good. And, and, you know, so we develop a program, uh, based on that. And, uh, that's really exciting to me. Right. I, I, I think that <laughs> we need a whole lot more of this kind of work of, of thinking strategically, uh, at a national level, and then tying that into direct action on the ground. And that's something I talk a lot about is like, you know, there's a lot of projects that happen, people are restoring wetlands or whatever, but they don't contribute all that much to this national picture because they're not tied to a strategy. And likewise, we see a lot of big conservation organizations come up with national strategies um, and then nothing ever gets implemented on the ground, right? Like, like the, those important wetlands aren't restored or those uh, important populations aren't managed properly. And, and so, um, you know, that's what ARC is doing now is, is we're going into these areas and, and, uh, and doing our best to conserve these species. So the idea is that you know, you 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 have the people who do the survey work or habitat restoration work, and the people who manage properties or manage projects, and then you have the larger what you would call them uh, outlier groups like you know the Nature Conservancy or Ducks Unlimited and so on and so forth. So the idea is to tie everybody together and have everybody looking at pick a place pick this spot on the map, this wetland or whatever, this, this particular, um, marsh or whatever. And everybody understands the goal and everybody's sort of working in with the same, in the same direction. And then things actually get done. Uh, or maybe too, I think a lot of times people aren't aware of what other people are doing. Right? Yeah. There's, there's gotta be some cross pollination happening there. Cause sometimes I think the the state people that are working uh, for the state on conservation issues, they may not understand, they not know that other people are also got their hand in this in some other way. So I think that's, that's probably a big, at least when I, you know, I used to go to these co-park meetings before COVID and 
you know, that, that seemed like cross pollination was like a big deal. You know, you can yeah. go and listen to how somebody in a, you know, the next state over from you is, is working on a wetland and then you realize, well, that, that thing crosses into my state, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so there's, you know, these, these habitats don't obviously follow geopolitical boundaries. So, um, so to me, that was sort of the big, uh, I thought it was a success, at least on the co-park level of getting people together in the same room, talking about those issues. But it sounds like you're trying to organize this all the way up the chain, so to speak. Yeah, I think, um, I think it's just about being strategic and, and how you leverage all those, those, um, activities and, and actions. And, um, and I can give you some examples like, um, you know, I mentioned the Francis Marion and that's, that's a, a place where we're focused on like mostly the forest, but, um, but it's bringing together a, a bunch of groups that have interest in, in, um, conserving these species, you know, Eastern diamondbacks and, and, uh, spotted turtles and, and pine snakes and Southern hognose and, and, uh, all these cool things. Um, and in that case, it's like, well, it's forest service land. They have, uh, you know, a mandate to manage these things properly. Uh, the fish and wildlife service, uh, is, is interested because of species like gopher frogs and Eastern diamondbacks that are, um, you know, either petitioned or, uh, under review. And then the state obviously as well, they have mandates under their state wildlife action plan to, to conserve and manage these things. And so in that case, you know, those are all, if we can, instead of all three of those agencies, sort of going their own way and doing their own thing. If we can, you know, tie that together, be the catalyst on the ground, be doing the management and, and leveraging all those resources and, and activities, we can really get some populations and metapopulations heading in the same direction. Um, and, and likewise, like, you know, we have a program in the, in the Southern Appalachians here, um, working on bog turtles and green salamanders and hellbenders. And, um, you know, in, in this case, like we can take, public lands like forest service lands and national park service lands and, uh, their efforts and, and help them and, and again, provide capacity for them and, and, and sort of sync up their efforts. And at the same time, we're, you know, can be working with, um, other groups like NRCS and national resource, uh, conservation service, uh, which is, you know, works with farmers and that sort of stuff. And they're yeah. starting to get much more in the, in the conservation world. And, and so, if we can, um, which we have been, you know, working with them, uh, they've got a great working lands for wildlife hellbender project and now bog turtle project. And, you know, and, and there's a lot of really great people working with them, like Kat Dearson from uh, Defenders of Wildlife and uh, is really leading that program. And so when we can start to say, all right, this group is, is you know, is working and NRCS is working with these private landowners and we match that up with populations that are close to important watersheds that, you know, are on public lands or whatever, and we're restoring habitat in there. Uh, you know, we start to make a dent and we start to get functioning metapopulations again. And, and uh, yeah. And, and that's a, uh, an example of a multi-state effort. Yeah. Yeah, so exactly. It's, it's across a number of different states. And I, I see, I see the, the, the wisdom in that too, because I mean, you want to, it's one thing to protect the, the, the river. Okay. The, the, the hellbenders in there, the water dogs in there, whatever it is. And, and the, and the, you know, the wood turtle or the bog turtle, but you got to have the farmers involved because a lot of times they're farming right up to the river. 
So you, you got to make sure they've got, they understand uh, what they could do in terms of conservation practices to uh, prevent siltation of the river. Uh, you know, a lot of, you know, they might need to leave uh, a buffer zone because, you know, wood turtles and bog turtles oftentimes come out and lay eggs in, you know, open areas and that, that could be a farmer's field. So, so you've got to have them buy into the whole program too. And uh, so I, I kind of see the wisdom of stitching that all together and you have to have the farmers on board too. And, uh, or just the landowners, I'm, uh, landowners probably more generic and more correct in that regard. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and, uh, and in a lot of cases, you know, it's a little bit goes a long way, right? We think these are like insurmountable problems and, um, and we think that, that we're up against this system, but it, in a lot of ways, like, you know, we have farmers, for example, example, who are haying fields, uh, near bog turtles and, and they're, they're, they're making, $500 a year off hang. <laughs> These aren't like, you know, but if we obviously can't go through the, throughout the range and give $500 to every farmer, uh, who might have a bog turtle or whatever, because you know, we just, there, there aren't those kinds of resources in conservation, but if we can pick the, you know, hundred most important ones, we're not talking about a lot of money to make a huge impact on, uh, right. on conservation or, or, you know, maybe hanging the field isn't the best example, but like, uh, you know, a lot of these, folks, landowners will, will ditch, uh, their bogs because that's how they sort of, uh, were raised and, you know, you're managing your land and whatever. And, and right. so you know, giving them a little bit of, of, uh, resource to not do that is, is, um, a very strategic way <laughs> to, yeah. to make a difference or, uh, buffering mm -hmm. hellbender streams or whatever it might be. Indeed. You know, we're not, we're, we're talking about, uh, doing, sort of actions that change the way we're thinking about conservation and, and, uh, and being realistic about the, the level of, um, resources that we have. We're never going to be, um, the Bezos foundation with <laughs> however many billions of dollars. Right. Right. Um, yeah. Unfortunately. Uh, yeah. but you also have to, I think, you know, when you talk about getting the, the priorities, uh, of ARC and, and, uh, in a park, um, getting things set up strategically, you have to strategically prepare for, well, like you say, there, there may be the, the money in the new infrastructure bill, uh, and more important, you know, maybe more importantly, the possibility of a lot more money available through the recovering, recovering America's wildlife act. So you have to be prepared for that too. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think, um, I like to say, you know, I'm, I'm build, trying to build our group now to live in, in, uh, in the time of now, right. We're, we're trying to, to get things on the ground and doing conservation now. And, um, the reason for that, uh, well, there's a lot of reasons, but I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm tired of seeing as I always use the metaphor of like, you know, for years, a lot of us have been watching you know, species X heading towards the waterfall in a boat. And we've been measuring that and, <laughs> and measuring it, measuring it, measuring it. And it's time to like pull that damn boat away from the waterfall, you know, and, and do something active. And, and, uh, but I say that because I think the, one of the things I think a lot about is that when you act now, when we're doing things now, um, the end of that activity is not the end of the road for that. Right. Like those things lead to, to, more people learning about it and, and getting more work done or more agencies getting involved or more like we get more efficient and better at it and we learn things. And so it's really important, I think, 
that we're we're doing these these things actively now. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, just from my observation of, of Copark, uh, I think that the organizations and you have a great organization for doing those things um, because there's such a, there's such a big reach. Um, I've talked about park on the show or park and co-park. And uh, I've talked about this many times on the show about, uh, you know, how this dips down into, people managing their own land and state people managing their land. And, you know, some of those folks are, maybe they're not biologists, but they're, they're following some rest, some cookbook or some instructions that somebody gave them 20 years ago for managing this property. And so park and, and co-park and ARC can offer, you know, updated methods to people that necessarily aren't, they're not, a you know, they're not uh they're not a JJ Apodaca. There's somebody else that is, has a job, and that's what they do every day. They go out and they mow this and they plant that, and maybe maybe they uh, get better information about managing the wetland on the on the land. For example, you know, putting in uh, buffers so that frogs can have a, a breeding areas that are you know c- uh, cut off from the main waterway, so that you know because uh, of course fish predation on eggs is you know cuts down on on frog po- populations, so. Just adding those kind of features, those kind of little steps are, to me, that that that's the sort of thing that um, that this these organizations are good at is getting yeah. uh, novel ideas or new ways of looking at, at ways of, of managing land and, and protecting species too. So it's a nice framework to have, I think. Yeah, those little changes are really important, and they add up. and And uh, and as I said before, I think the important thing is that that those little changes are really focused on uh, those priority areas. Right. And, and if you get a bunch of little changes in priority areas, you're not, uh, you're not talking about spending tens of millions of dollars to purchase all that land and put it in conservation. You're talking about, like you said, p- people putting buffers in or not mowing, uh, you know, when blanding turtles are out nesting or, right. You know, yeah, yeah. these are like, like small shifts that can make, make a big difference and, and allow us to sort of get, you know, allow these species to get uh, a, a foothold back and, and start growing the populations again. Yeah. Little changes. Yeah. What else do you want? As far as ARC goes, it, I mean, if we're talking to our listening audience out there, what else would you want, would you want them to know about this organization? Um, well, we're, you know, we're, we're about to um, launch a new website and, uh, and a whole new sort of awareness campaign. And so, you keep an eye out for that. But, um, I mean, I think more than anything, I, I want folks to like understand sort of how they can be involved and how they, why their involvement is important in terms of, you know, financially supporting ARC and, and, and all these organizations. And, and, um, I think, you know, when I think about it, at least myself and a lot of people I know when we're coming up, we sort of have been thinking about, the burden of conservation should be on agencies and, you know, fish and wildlife service and state agencies and those sorts of, of things. And we all like to complain about how agency X isn't managing this right or, or whatever. But, um, in reality, like what, whatever the reason is, um, behind all of that, like they need support. We need to be as a community coming together and supporting the things we love and, and building the capacity to, um, address those problems. And that's exactly what ARC is trying to do is, 
is to go in, like I said, strategically to these areas and, and move the needle and, and get a lot of good conservation work done. Um, I feel like I kind of rambled around in that, so I'm not sure I totally answered your question. <laughs> well, I, th- I think I think I understand that too. It's like, you know, we we know in the back of our minds that there, like you say, there there's fish and wildlife, there's there's this organization, there's your state, your DNRs and you, you know, your uh, things at the, the state level and and we know about the nature conservancy and Ducks Unlimited and we think, "Oh, it's great, man. These guys are all doing the the good work and everything's fine. And I'm just going to keep going down uh, you know, in the back of my mind, I know all that stuff's happening, so I don't have to worry about it. But the, um, you know, this is more of a organization that's outside uh, of of that, but it's also a part of the the overall conservation effort. But uh, it it is a way for people to get involved, and it is a way for people to come together, pull together. Your your you know, in my case, my Illinois DNR isn't going to come up with a program that pulls together resources from other states and other agencies. Mm-hmm. That's not going to happen, but ARC can can facilitate those sort of things, can facilitate projects where those resources can be can come together. At least people are aware of what other resources are available or are in play for conservation. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. Okay. Um, Ooh, I was worried about that. <laughs> I, was, I was hoping I was understanding this correctly, but yeah. 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 And, um, you know, and so you like, hopefully folks will give us a follow on, on the social media and, and learn more about what ARC is doing and, and, um, you know, and get involved in the projects and, and, and help out in, in that way. And, and we've got big plans. And, um, like I said, this is a real passion project and, and we want to be effective on the ground programs and and all across the nation and, and, and you know yeah. make a difference that well, way. well tell me i i know some of the answers to this um you're talking about people getting involved and being part of this and i, I think about you know i you know i got my little car and i drove all the way out from my home to colorado and spent a weekend out there uh, doing helping to do a, a co-park herp survey out there and then, you know, drove back and it was a lot of fun. It was a good time. And I know things like the Orient society has things like places you've never herped and things like that. So do you, what is, what does ARC have that allows the general public to participate or what do you envision? How do you envision the general public can participate in, in activities? Well, we are, uh, you know, we take volunteers at some of our programs occasionally. I don't want to, claim that we're doing that a whole lot just yet but um but in the future i think we'll have that capacity much more in place than than we do now right like and the way i envision is we have these parka programs and um you know folks like yourself and and the hurt mapper team and the hurt mapper community you can go out to those parkas and and um herp and, and record record data and sure and, you know um yeah i, I can't tell you how many uh, meetings across the country that I went to. I mean, I've done uh, 26 or seven states now um, identifying those, those parkas, those areas. And um, for everyone, almost uh, at least 80% of the parkas in each state data, you know, were data deficient in some species, some target species like abundance or, or, um, you know, even existence in some of these areas. And so I think, 
I know that data is out there. You know, as, as you might recall, you, uh, HurtMapper has been really great in providing us a lot of that data, but answering the call to go out to those, you know, some of these areas that aren't as uh, explored or whatever is a great way. Uh, I think in general, getting a little off topic, I think in general, just supporting these organizations and being aware and, and following on social media and being on the newsletters and stuff will, uh, is the best way right now to like sort of learn about more about ARC. And, and I say that as like, as a conservationist uh, at heart and, who you know, do that for all of the, <laughs> these organizations, right? Like, you, you know, the Orient Society, Turtle Survival Alliance and uh, Texas turtles and uh you know there's there's so many amphibian foundation there's there's a bunch of really great organizations that weren't there 15 years ago right and right but we need more of we need more uh, you know i know a lot of people that support the nature nature conservancy every year and are huge herp people and don't support any herp organizations right like, I think that's, well you know i have to i have to confess that that was me um for uh you know for years and and the past couple of years, uh, you know, I, I have X, I'm a retired guy. I have X dollars. So I, I only have so much I can donate. So, you know, I've kind of shifted from that approach. You know, it's like, well, why, why am I not supporting more of these local organizations? So that's, that's kind of a shift for me. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, Nature Conservancy, but I'm not, <laughs> giving, I'm not giving you any money this year. That money goes to somebody more, uh, you know, the things I'm interested in, which is herbs. So, uh, so that's, you know, it's going somewhere else. So, um, so I, I started to make that shift because it, it's sort of a self-realization that, you know, boy, there's a lot of, it's like, you know, just scrolling through social media, these, there's so many groups that you could support. And I'm thinking, well, yeah, maybe Audubon, maybe I don't give you your money this year. Maybe it goes to some other herb group, which, which is what I've done this year. So. I'm almost completely completely off the big, the big name, um, yeah, organizations. So I, I'm 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 the same way. You know, I, I donate to organizations that I uh, care a lot about, and um, including a lot of the other herp organizations, and and then some you know smaller local groups that are doing great stuff that I that I see locally. Um, and and I'll just add in there either that you know the sort of the classic model is like how do you help. Um, you know, you can think of in, in time, treasure, talent, you know, um, volunteering and, and some of these things and, uh, or, or treasure, obviously funding or, but talent is a big thing. <laughs> you know, there's, there's, uh, so many skills that people have that they don't realize would be extremely useful. Um, yeah. I just talked to some guys from the Asclepius snake bite foundation to talk to a couple of doctors, the, the, the same sort of thing, you know, they, they, you have, they have, physicians that are working on this project to help, you know, bring the snake, snake bite uh, fatalities and occurrences down in, in Africa and in other places. But, uh, you know, they need, they need people who can do project management and, and social media development and, and that, that sort of thing, because they, they, they're doctors. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they're not, you know, they're not, uh, they don't have those skills. They have important skills, but they don't have these other important skills. So they, you know, it was one of the things that they were asking for is, you know, we need some help running the organization and, you know, people who know how to do fundraising and things like that. So those things are important too. Yeah. Like totally. you, say, you can do, totally. do, devote your time and talent to, uh, if you have those kind of talents. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I, I can tell you that, um, uh, you know, arc right now would not, we wouldn't be in the position that we're in without, uh, one of our key volunteers. And I don't know that he would like to be named, but, um, you know, somebody who's put an enormous amount of time into arc and, and that, that, you know, personally, but, um, is, uh, you know, just loves herps and, uh, and has helped our organization become <laughs> much more structured and much more professional and, and, and light years ahead of where we would have been, uh, without him. And that sort of time and, and devotion is, is worth more than <laughs> a huge donation. Right. Yeah. Right. Necessarily giving of yourself too. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, when, when, when I put out this episode, I'll have lots of links in the show notes and people can find out more about ARC and, you know, how they can help and that sort of thing. Um, but I, I, you know, I it's sitting here wondering you, you talk about tangled bank and you have X number of projects a year that you're working on. And you have obviously this, this big, uh, responsibility with ARC, but, uh, do you get out in the field much? I mean, is, you know, is the head honcho of these two big, uh, concerns, do you, <laughs> do you still get out in the field much or do you find yourself spending more and more time, uh, doing administrative stuff? I mean, I, I definitely, um, you know, I, I guess I'm, I'm extremely fortunate to have really good people, um, working for me and with me, um, in both organizations. And so I get to focus on like sort of big operations and big thinking and that sort of thing and, and have those really great people, um, doing a lot of this, the stuff that's really time consuming, um, and so, yeah, I don't get out, you know, as much as I would like to, or as much as I used to or anything like that, but I still, I still make it a, um, uh, you know, I'm heading down next week to the Francis Marion for sort of the start of uh, diamondback season and, and oh. hoping to see some spotteds and, um, you know, and I always make sure that at least a couple times every, you know, spring and fall that I do some hickory nut gorge green salamander surveys. And then, uh, and then I try to be, pretty involved with, uh, with the bog turtle restoration stuff. I love, you know, there's nothing better after sitting on a whole week of zoom calls and stuff to get out into a bog and cut down a bunch of trees and, <laughs> and do some good, you know, yeah. some good chainsaw work and, and, uh, yeah. uh, and, you know, see a bog turn in from some there. Of, there's some something about physical stuff. work. I mean, you know, when you do all this work, organization work, and everything's online these days, you can't prove you do anything if the electricity's off. Yeah, it doesn't even <laughs> yeah, exist. Yeah. But if you cut down trees and 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 help keep a, a bog healthy, you can drive out there in a week and go look at look what I did. Yeah, it's tangible, right? So yeah, yeah, I'm super excited this year. We're gonna. Um start restoring some gopher frog ponds down in the Francis Marion and removing oh. some of the shrubberings and that sort of stuff. And so, yeah, I'm looking forward to that of, of like going out there and seeing those turn from just a, a mess to, to a good pond again, you know, what, it, what it should be. So, awesome. Awesome. But yeah. Yeah. There's definitely some real reward. It's a real reward to see, to see yeah. some of those habitats go for like I've built some wetlands in the past too. I'm actually going to build a few more this year. And, and that's the same sort of thing. Like, especially when you go back a few months later and there's vegetation in it and you can find, you know, several species of salamanders and frogs using it. And you're just like, yeah, this is great. You know, like, yeah, yeah. Our, yeah. our, our mutual buddy, Don Becker, 
mm-hmm. uh, the, the Mapper developer spent an enormous amount of time pulling a, a sand prairie back together, you know, going yeah. in and cutting out all the invasives and opening up the landscape and uh, bringing them in. And, you know, of course the next year and all of a sudden you start seeing these plants and other, you know, other creatures that are, you know, should be on the sand prairie are starting to use the sand prairie again. And, and so there was, a, for him, there was an immense amount of satisfaction in that work. It's, it's, it's tangible and yet it's hard to measure. Yeah. In terms yeah. of, you know, you can measure how many meetings you go to. How many, how many <laughs> Zoom meetings. That's, that's so depressing. Yeah. yeah that, that's a, that's a unit of work there, but it's, 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 a, it's much more satisfying to do work. That's, that's harder to define. Yeah. Uh, physical work. So, you know, and ultimately, you know, my hope is that not to get too far but to circle back a little bit, my hope is that for every Barca program that we have, we have folks like a, like a Don Becker and like so many other who will come out and, and, you know, put those passions to really help us restore and, and, you know, like, like be like a sort of catalyst on the ground that are like, yeah, we just want to, we want to restore some ponds. We want to get this habitat back to what it should be. And, uh, obviously that's more straightforward some places than others. Uh, yeah. My hope is that one day, uh, ARC is dealing with all the permits and painful things and, and allowing people to <laughs> like our staff and, uh, volunteers to get out and, and do that work without thinking twice about it, that it's just part of our, our operations. And we're there in a, in a few other places. That sounded like a dog over there. Yeah. <laughs> she's awesome. She's, Hopefully all her snoring hasn't showed up on the microphone. <laughs> I think we're good there. Uh, well, JJ, I want to thank you for, for coming on the show and um, giving us a picture of what you're doing. I appreciate the the work you're doing with ARC. And um, I have to say, uh, honestly fascinated with the work you're doing with Tangled Bank. So uh, it's just been kind of fun. And I, these, are, these are the things I like to think about, you know, uh, the, uh, Metabar analysis stuff. Now, I'm going to be I'm going to be thinking about that for a while now. It sounds so yeah. exciting. So, thanks for coming on the show and talking about all this cool stuff. Yeah, thanks for having me again. I really appreciate it, and and, uh, and thanks for doing what you're doing. I think this is is great. You know, um, bringing us together as a community more, <laughs> folks who love herps and and uh, yeah, spend our time working to- towards helping them. Yeah, well, you know, I can't I I. I didn't want to just talk to Herper bros, you know, about you know, the, the cool things we find in the field, which is obviously fun. And I like those things, but, but I, I need to talk to, I need to talk to folks like you and, or like, like Priya, you know, just people that are doing all this awesome work behind the, the scenes. And uh, I think uh, we, we have to know about all of these things if we want to keep appreciating them. So. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. Um, you know, and for me, like who uh, I, I sort of, get to live vicariously through a lot of the, you know, <laughs> those <laughs> folks who come on the show or yeah. you talking about Peru or whatever. It is. Well, I have no shortage of that stuff. So yeah. <laughs> well, thanks again. Yeah. Thank you. That's it for episode 61. I want to thank JJ Apodaca for coming on the show really enjoyed our conversation and uh, thanks for listening everyone and uh, be sure to check out the show notes for the link to the scientific american article on salamander genomes it's very interesting thanks again to jason folt for supporting the show 
And thanks, as always, to all of the So Much Pingle patrons. And if you would like to kick in a few bucks to help support the show, you can do so via Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash so much pingle. And so much pingle is all one word. You can also make one-time contributions via PayPal or Venmo. Just drop me an email to so much pingle at gmail.com for more details or see the show notes. And don't forget that you can find all the recorded episodes and show notes at so much pingle.com. And you can also join the So Much Pingle Facebook group to follow the show and interact with me and some of my guests. And last but not least, you can reach me directly via email at so much pingle at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. And until we meet again, please take good care of yourselves and don't forget to hurt better. <laughs> <laughs>